For those of you who have been here for any length of time at all, you know that I'm a man obsessed. I'm a, a man obsessed. I'm obsessed with the love of God and how it transforms us to be outrageous lovers. And so we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13 and just uh, examining what Paul says about love. Uh, in fact, what the Bible as a whole says about love. This whole message, this series we are talking about, I know it seems basic, but it is so revolutionary. It is so radical. Uh, every week when I go back to the Word and am asking this question, how do we become Christ-like outrageous lovers so the body of Christ looks and smells like Jesus Christ and is attracting the kind of people that Jesus Christ attracted, I'm finding new layers. Uh, and uh, it, it just hits me over and over and over again. I've never had a series like this that I have uh, personally been impacted as strongly by where I find myself many times weeping as I'm, as I'm doing the preparation for it. And it's just part of the weeping is that the church has, is so far from this. As a whole, it is. And this is the center of the center. If we get this done, everything else we need to get done gets done. If this doesn't get done, there's nothing else worth getting done. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious, love is not boastful. We've examined all those things. Love is not rude. And this morning I want to look at briefly, and I'm going to be very condensed here because I have a lot to say in a short amount of time. But love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And whenever you're trying to insist on your own way, you're going to be irritable and resentful. Love gives people space. It doesn't try to control them. I want to just, once again, pray for this message very quickly. And I would like some people to be, for the next half hour, covering me in prayer on the auditorium. Could you raise your hand if you'll be my personal intercessor? Just sprinkle your listening in with prayer. Great. Father, use this message to, to make this come alive in our life. Every single thing about us, Lord God, that blocks the flow of your love to us and through us, let it be gone in Jesus' name. And any demonic energy that's trying to keep it there in place, we come against that in Jesus' name. We ask, Lord God, that your word would have an authority that doesn't come from a human speech but comes from you to make us radical, outrageous lovers, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, you'd collapse any kind of presuppositions we have about religion that keep us from being the radical lovers you've called us to be. Let it happen, Lord. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we've said a number of times here, uh, Paul is not giving us a new list of do's and don'ts. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, he's not saying try hard not to control others, try hard not to be boastful. What he's saying is when you walk in a fullness of love, this is what it looks like. When you walk in a fullness of love, this is what it looks like. So these aren't ethical mandates that can be universally applied. They're just general characteristics of what it looks like to walk in love. There are times where it's the loving thing to do to insist on your own way. Every parent knows that. You influence as much as you can, but you're the one who's in on the know, and sometimes the kids aren't, and so sometimes you have to insist on your own way. Uh, that's true in leadership as well. There are other times where there are people who don't insist on their own way enough. Their self-image is such that uh, they, they, they loathe themselves and so think they think their opinion isn't worth even saying. So there's, this isn't an ethical rule that's supposed to be applied at all times and all places, but it is a general characteristic of love that you don't try to control people. You don't get life from trying to insist on your own way. And if you're living life not trying to insist on your own way, you're going to find that you're not as irritable and you're not as resentful. 
Why is it? Most of us, to some degree, some more than others, and some obsessively so, but why is it that we try to insist on our own way? Things have to look the way we want them to look. People have to think the way we want them to think. People have to act the way we want them to act. Decisions have to be made the way we think they should be made. Why do we do that? The answer is that we think, if we look at it carefully, we think that our perceptions of the world are the right perceptions and therefore that our opinions about what should be done in response to the world are the right opinions. This, again, like everything else, goes back to the Garden of Eden. We ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, the, the serpent said that if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. In fact, God said, as he was uh, blocking them out from the garden, he said they have become like one of us, knowing good and evil. There is a certain divinity to our knowledge of good and evil. It, we might call it an omniscience mechanism. We think like God thinks. The trouble is we're not God. The knowledge of good and evil operates very well when combined with omniscience. That means all-knowing. God is all-knowing. He knows everything. There's nothing ambiguous to God. He sees everything perfectly clear. Plus, he's full of life. He's never trying to meet his own needs by what he knows. And so the knowledge of good and evil is very accurate, and, and that's why he is the one who is the judge of the earth. But when human beings get a hold of this thing, we're not omniscient. But the omniscience mechanism acts as though we were. We have a tendency to think that we're omniscient. We never say that. But in fact, we act like we are. We, we think we know what we do not know. We think we have the privileged perspective on the world. And therefore, we want things to go our way. We get mad at the world. Why is this world so doggone stupid? If only they thought the way I think. If only they, you know, then, then they, everything would be fine. We have a tendency to do that, don't we? And that's the knowledge of good and evil. And see, because we're living out of an empty center, we feed ourselves with this idea that we know when we don't know. Usually what we think we know and the, 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 the things we project on the world we're doing to feed ourselves. We are the ones who are in on the right. You should be like me. You should look like me. You should grow like me. You should make decisions like I think they should make, uh, uh, people should make decisions. We feed ourselves with it. Not only that, but there's something about the knowledge of good and evil that rejects, now, now hear me on this, it rejects ambiguity. We don't like ambiguity. Part of that's because we're living out of an empty center, and so we need to feel secure. And if we can just make the world a clear place where we know the in, and, and we can nicely divide up the world, we feel secure. We're in control, you see? And, and, and we feed ourselves with that. But see, for God, nothing is ambiguous. And when we, tr when we try to steal God's knowledge, there is this tendency for us to impose on the world a clarity that is not there. For finite people like us, the world is mostly ambiguous. Our, our perspectives are so very, very limited. But we don't like that. We have this tendency, this omniscience mechanism, uh, to insist that the world is clear, and so we impose on things a clarity that is not there, and we think the world has to look the way we think it should look. It should be our way. I was in a debate this last week with a person on the Internet over a fairly hot topic, and uh, this, I, was, I said, you know, this issue is very complex, uh, there's a lot of different angles here, a lot of different things to consider, and, and so on, so on, and so on. And he said, well, you know, to people who are trying to avoid the truth, things are always complex. Think about it. Well, isn't that special? <laughs> you see, the, the, now there are people, I'm sure, who just, you know, kind of, you know, cloud up issues to run away from things. I'm sure that happens. But this person's presupposition was... Everything is clear, everything's unambiguous, and it's the way I see it. And anyone who disagrees with me can only be for moral motives. You don't want to see the truth. If you disagree with me, that just is further proof that you're an immoral person who doesn't want to see the truth. 
religious fundamentalism is characterized by this. Everything is so clear, it's so obvious, it's my way. And the world is nicely divided between the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys are the ones who coincidentally agree with me. The bad guys are the ones who don't. You see, we just impose that clarity on the world. We don't like things to be ambiguous. We're feeding ourselves from the knowledge of good and evil, and therefore we insist that things are our way. A great deal of the Bible is about uh, attacking uh, our arrogant uh, assumption that we know things that we don't know. It's, it's really attacking our, our knowledge of good and evil. The book of Job, which is, as you know, if you've been here for any length of time, my favorite book in the Bible, although Genesis is creeping up there, but uh, uh, it, it's all about human beings coming to grips with the fact that they don't know things. So you find in the book of Job, Job gets into all this uh, suffering and all this pain and all this woe. The friends all think they know. They kn- the world is the way that uh, we see it. We insist that the world is the way that we see it. And the world that they see is that it's nicely divided between the good guys and the bad guys. God rewards the good guys, punishes the evil guys. You are here in suffering, therefore you're being punished. So they say things like this. Think now. Use your head. If you don't agree with us, you must not be intelligent. Who that was innocent ever perished? Ask yourself the question, is this person inferring this from the world or are they imposing it on the world? I submit to you that the innocent always perish. (laughs) Uh, He's imposing on the world something he wishes was there. The world has to be my way. Or where were the upright ever caught off? Well, I can think of about a million examples. As I have seen, oh, this is the way I see it. I know. Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Job, the reason you're in the pits is because you've sowed trouble and you're reaping the same. We know it. We're confident. This is the way the world is. We've got the privileged perspective. So Job sees that they're feeding on themselves with their supposed knowledge of good and evil. Uh, They're not speaking for Job's benefit. They're speaking for their own benefit. So he says this in chapter 6. The caravans turn aside from their course to get safety. Or they they turn aside to get water. Uh, They're seeking something, these caravans. But they go up into the waste and perish. Bad decision. They are disappointed because they were confident. They came there and are confounded. Now listen to this. Such you have become to me. You see my calamity and are afraid. See, you don't like what you see here. You've taken a turn in the road, and you are confident that the world just fits all your presuppositions. You've got God in a box, and you just know everything, don't you? And here you're, you're facing a person like me. And, and, and if, I, if I am as righteous as you, then you know that what happened to me just might happen to you, and you don't want to live in a world where this might happen to you. So out of your fear, you're insisting that the world is the way that you want it to be. And I'm getting indicted. Religious people do this all the time. We speak out of our own emptiness, we speak out of our own fear, we impose things, we, uh, we think we know stuff we don't know, and people get hurt because of it. But now Job isn't any innocent angel either. He does the same thing throughout the book of Job. He arrogantly thinks he knows things that he doesn't know. He thinks he knows that God is behind everything that's happening to him. In fact, God's behind all the evil in the world. So he accuses God throughout the entire book of some horrendous things. He says things like this. From the city of the dying groan and the throat of the wounded cries for help. Yet God pays no attention to their prayers. Really, Job, you know that, don't you? You're very confident of that. You you really have the privileged perspective. You're the omniscient one. You've got an omniscient mechanism going on. But see, when God shows up, what he basically says is, you guys don't know nothing. You're all ignorant. You're all ignorant. So he says, the Lord says things like this. Uh, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
Darkens counsel. When you speak, you don't shed light on a subject, you darken it. Because <laughs> you're using words without knowledge. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? You're going you're gonna to pick a bone with me? You're going to be my lawyer? You're going to be my prosecutor here, Job? Do you really know enough to do that? You know more than me. You're really in on things. You're on the inside of my life, and you're going to judge me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And what he's saying there is, Job, you're feeding yourself by your accusations. You're feeding yourself trying to get life by thinking you know stuff that you do not know. What God says in, the, in this uh, three-chapter monologue at the end is basically this. You guys, the world's very complex. You don't know anything about it. So he talks about the complexity and the grandness of creation. And then he says the world's caught in a war zone. There's this Leviathan and, and, and Behemoth, these cosmic creatures ancient people believed in. And, and uh, there's a warfare going on. And you don't know much about that, and you certainly couldn't do better at it than I'm doing. So until you know things, really know things, maybe you should be hesitant to start uh, accusing one another or accusing me. You don't know. The whole point of the book is human life is surrounded by a lot of ambiguity, a lot of questions, a lot of things we don't know. If I didn't have the prologue in front of me, I wouldn't know and you wouldn't know the prologue of the book of, of Job. I wouldn't know why Job went into the suffering he went into. See, we wouldn't know and that's the point of the book. The reader is given a perspective that, they, that the characters in the narrative don't have uh, to show the ignorance of the characters in the narrative. We don't know why things happen the way they do. But because we have an omniscience mechanism, we try to impose it on the world. The point of the book of Job is to say, don't darken counsel with words without knowledge. Know what you don't know. Accept the ambiguity. Live in that. From the ministry of Jesus, I learned that I don't know why people, one person's born blind and not another. John 9, I know that I don't know why uh, towers fall on a certain group of people and not a different group of people, or why towers fall at all, or, or why, why uh, Pilate massacred a bunch of, of Jews and mixed their blood with sacrifices. I don't know why that happened to those people and not some other people. But I've got to know what I don't know. I've got to accept the ambiguity of that. Why is one person healed and not another person? Why is one person uh, you know, demonized and not another person? Jesus never asked those questions. In fact, he refutes those questions because the one question he wants to deal with is this. What can I do out of, I, 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 in response? to this situation? How can I bring the will of God to this situation? But we've got to know what we don't know, except the ambiguity. We need to apply that to each other's lives. Because if we don't, we try to insist that people have to look the way, act the way, think the way, make decisions the way, grow the way that we do it. I don't know anything about you. Unless you're a close friend of mine, I don't know anything uh, uh, about your life. I don't know your situation. I don't know your struggles. I don't know the genetic composition of your being, and you don't even know that. Uh, your personality, the social influences on your life, the spiritual influences on your life, where you are with God. I can see appearances. I can see exteriors. But unless I'm on the inside of your life, I don't know diddly squat. And so I have to accept that ambiguity. There's a whole lot I don't know. What I do know about you is the one thing I need to know. I know the best thing about you, and I know the worst thing about you. I'm on to you here. Visitors, I'm on to you. I know, I know the worst thing that you've ever done. You know what? Your sin was so vile. You were so lost. You were in such trouble that Jesus Christ, God himself, had to die for you. Man, you must have really been a sorry case. Uh, Jesus Christ had to die for you. I know the worst thing about you. Your sin put Christ on the cross. But I also know the best thing about you, and that is that Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross for you. So you have unsurpassable worth. I know the best thing about you. I know the worst thing about you. And if I don't know anything else about you, that's fine. I've got to accept that ambiguity. What I do know is that my life mission and the life mission of every disciple is to agree with God about that. Yes, you're a sinner, but you have unsurpassable worth. And therefore, I'm not going to insist that you look like me, talk like me, think like me. I'm going to give you space for God to work in your life. I know God in Jesus Christ. 
I don't know a whole lot of other things, but I know God in Jesus Christ, and I know who I am in Jesus Christ, and I know who you are in Jesus Christ, and that is the one thing that is needful because if I get that one point of clarity down, now the flow of God's love can flow to me and through me to you, and that's the purpose for creation. But a whole lot of other things are ambiguous. Amen. Let me illustrate this. Um, there is a principle of, of uh, organizational management that I've learned. It says a lot about human nature. Uh, basically, it's this. The people farthest removed uh, from a decision are the ones who tend to be most critical of it. The ones who are on the outside of things tend to be the most critical of it. Uh, they tend to think they know when they don't know, and they have the strongest confidence that they do know, and they tend to have the harshest perspective. Uh, and it, it's a principle of human nature. Uh, you see this in, um, well, for example, uh, if there's a car wreck, and there's a 10-car, you know, chain reaction pileup sort of thing. The people in car 10 are going to tend to be much more judgmental and less compassionate and more confident about uh, why things happened the way they, they did than the people who are in car number one. The people in car number one, they're in on the situation. They're on the inside. They, they, they're able to cut through some of the ambiguity and see what happened and therefore, they're in a perspective to do something about it, and they're not interested in, in just judging the situation. So maybe the people in car number one and two and three, they see that a woman had a seizure, and that's why there was this car wreck. Uh, and and there's two kids in the car, and they're both in critical condition. And the only thing that matters right now is how can we help this situation? How can we save the lives of, of, of uh, these, these two kids? Meanwhile, back in cars number 9 and 10, there's people who are saying, these idiots, there's somebody who wasn't paying attention. They probably were drunk. They, you know, they're probably road rage. There's a bunch of stupid people in this world, and I got a, I got a dent in, my, in, in my, my, my fender. They're worried about the dent in the fender, judging the people up front, where the people up front who are on the inside of the complexity of the situation are simply asking the question, what's, what is the loving thing to do here? It's part of human nature. It's our omniscience mechanism. Some people call it the backseat driver syndrome. Those who aren't driving, who won't drive, who don't drive, maybe who can't drive, are the experts on how you should drive. Is that not true? Is that not human nature? And the farther back in the bus they are, the more critical they are of the driver. They don't see the potholes. They don't see all the stuff that they got to, you know, the, 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 the task that the driver has to go through. But it's sure easy to sit back there and say, well, if I was there, here's how I would do it. They should be doing this. They should be driving this way. Why can't they just this? Why can't they just that? You see, they're on the outside rather than the inside. But if you don't collapse your omniscience mechanism, you act like you're on the inside. And are very confident of your views. You see this throughout the ministry of Moses. I, you know, the, 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 whole, the, the whole nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament was a backseat driver to Moses and to David and to, to all you know, the leaders that are there. We know what's going on, Moses. You brought us out here to kill us. Yeah, that's right. And they start talking to other people and they create, create a, a, an omniscience mechanism in a group thing. That's a dangerous thing. People talk with one another and say, here's what's going on. Yahweh's out here to kill us. You know, he's not really a good God. And Moses, he doesn't know diddly squat what's going on. He went up in that mountain. He's just disappeared. He's left us. We need to get some golden calves right now. See, backseat driver who aren't on the inside. They don't know what Moses knows. They don't know what Joshua knows, but they think they know. And so a lot of destructive things take place. You see this in the ministry of Jesus. Here comes this guy who's a rabbi and he's hanging out with prostitutes, tax collectors, drunkards, gluttons, and all sorts of sinners. That looks a little interesting, doesn't it now? 
one wonders what's going on in those late night meetings he has with those prostitutes and tax collectors. And, 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 and this is, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think he is a drunkard. I think he is a glutton. And I, I wonder if he's having relationships with these women. And they gossiped about that. You find it in Luke chapter 7 because they weren't on the inside. The disciples are there. And they see what Jesus is doing, the love that is there. The, the, they, they, they enter into the pain of the prostitute and the complexity of their lives. And, and, and they see the ministry that's going on there. And they've got a vision for what, for what the kingdom of God is really about. So, so they're not the ones who are, who are, who are you know, criticizing it. They're on the inside doing something with it. But the outsiders on the outside, they, they just look at it. And they look on the basis of appearances. And they think they know what they do not know. Their omniscience mechanism kicks, kicks in. And they've got all these harsh opinions. Here's, a, here's what we should do with prostitutes. I think we should do it my way. My way is we need to come down on these things. We need to come down on these tax collectors and this Jesus who's being nice to them and compassionate and all this kind of stuff. That's just compromise. You think you know what you don't know. and See, things look very different from the inside than they do from the outside, don't they? Things always look very different from the inside. The people driving the situation who are involved, they, they know the issues at least better than those on the outside, but it tends to be the case because of our omniscience mechanism. We insist things go our way. We think we know what we don't know. And see, if you're operating out of emptiness, if you're not getting life from Jesus Christ, if you're not walking in the fullness of love, you have an omniscience mechanism. And so you will live life being resentful and irritable because things don't always go your way. But you think they ought to go your way because you have the privileged perspective on things and you know what's best for people and you know what they ought to be doing and and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Bible calls us to live in love, live out of the fullness of life that we get in Jesus Christ. And, and uh, having received unsurpassable worth, we ascribe unsurpassable worth. And that means we give space to, for people. Space even for God to work in people's lives. And maybe in ways that, we, that he doesn't work in our life. They grow at a different pace. They look a little bit different. We give space to people. Uh, we cut slack. And if we're invited in on the inside, then maybe eventually we'll gain a little bit of wisdom to know how to help drive their life if they ask us to. But even there, it's not because we want to get life by, by being the one who's right. We, we want to ascribe life by helping them find what God wants for them. See, I, I, the only one who knows your life situation uh, is, is you. You're the one who's on the inside of that life situation. And others, I hope that you've invited in on it. But to the outside, we, we don't see that. We don't know the complexity of your life. No one knows the, the, the difficulty and the particular struggles of your marriage. Marriages are very complex things. There's always a history and a story and all of this. And so how would I know where you're at? I could come up with a rule. Here's a rule that you should do. But you know what? I don't know the complexity of your situation. Only you and those you've invited in on that situation know it. So I, as I'm looking from the outside, I have to know what I don't know. What I don't know is, is the complexity of your situation. So I can't insist that you do it my way, that you make this decision, that I know all the answers. As I, you're the one driving it, not me. So you know what? I'm just going to pray for you and ascribe worth to you. I don't need to have any other opinions about it. I just ascribe worth to you. No one knows the complex situation of your relationship with your kids or with your friends or the struggles that you're going through. You're on the inside. I'm on the outside unless you've invited me in. And I said, okay, I, I can do that. And so my job as an outsider and all of our jobs as outsiders is to know what we don't know and not insist that it looks our way and, and don't think that we, we have the rule book that will solve everyone's problems. Life is, is, is very, very complex. You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely vital. It's crucial. If we are going to be a community that looks like Jesus Christ, that smells like Jesus Christ, the aroma of that love that is so attractive to people who are hungry, it is absolutely vital that we live in this, in, in this perspective. Collapse our omniscience mechanism. 
Uh, churches are full of people who think they know what is best for everybody, what everyone should look like, uh, how, you know, what sins should be taken care of in what order. And the result is they, and, and what it does is it gives us security because we want to know who's on the inside and who's on the outside. Let's get rid of this ambiguity here. You know, the world, the church needs to look so different from the world. And so we just need to kind of have these, this, this thing in place so we can know, like it's important for you to know. I submit to you that if you were to follow Jesus, in his ministry, you wouldn't know. Look at that crowd. He's got tax collectors, prostitutes, gluttons, and sinners following him all over the place. Who's going to set themselves up as judge and be able to determine, oh, these people are on the inside and these people are on the outside? He also has a lot of religious folk following him. So maybe you think, well, the religious folks are in, but the other ones are not. The trouble is Jesus turns that whole thing around and says, no, these, these tax collectors and prostitutes are closer than those religious folks. In other words, you don't know. Don't even think that you know. Collapse your omniscience mechanism. Don't insist that the crowd that follows Jesus is going to look the way that you think a religious crowd should look because this ain't a religious crowd. This is a Jesus crowd, and the two are very different from one another. We need to give space to people. Now, I, I, I want to drive home this point in, a, in, a, in, I think, a strong way, and I'm going to do it in a bizarre way. You're not going to know what I'm doing here for about five minutes. I'm going to preach a sermon on obesity. All right? I don't know if I've ever addressed this particular sin, but I'm going to preach on it. And, and folks who are uh, significantly uh, overweight, you're going to be nervous for about five minutes. I promise I'll redeem myself. Okay? So just hang in there. But I'm, I'm, I'm making a point here. You see, here's the, the reality is that obesity is, uh, gluttony is a very frequently mentioned sin in the Bible. The Bible says in, in Jewish culture, in fact, lust and any kind of pornea uh, was, was, and, and, and gluttony were considered on a par with one another. The two evidences of a person whose life is not being controlled by God were that they eat more than they need and they have sex outside of marriage. Those are the two main things in Jewish culture. But it was huge. The Bible says that we're to walk in freedom, not bondage. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has called you to be free. Therefore, stand fast in the freedom. Don't be brought under the yoke of anything. If you can't control your food, you're in bondage to food. Knock it off. Bible, the most frequently mentioned sin in the Bible is greed. Greed is simply a matter of, of, of craving more than you need. And the ancients uh, didn't uh, limit that to money or to possessions. They also included food in that. So every time you read about greed in the Bible, you can include eating more than you need. Philippians chapter 3, Paul specifically pre- uh, preaches against those whose God is their belly. They live for food, and there are people like that. And, and that is a, uh, a sinful thing. Proverbs 28 says that the person who hangs out with a glutton, a companion of a glutton, is a shame to his parents. Now, I guess that would mean that Jesus' parents were, would be shamed, but there's a principle right there in the Bible. In fact, get this, in Ezekiel 16, it says that the reason Sodom was destroyed, this is the Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah, the reason Sodom was destroyed, it was because they enjoyed excess food and did not give to the hungry. So if you've got more than you need, if you're eating more than you need while there are people who have less than they need, that is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it doesn't mention, interestingly enough, homosexuality. This is a huge sin. We need to come down on this, folks. We need to preach the Word of God without compromise. You know, and and this, is, this is, in fact, what makes it even more grave is that this is a huge social sin. I submit to you, it is the biggest social sin. It is destroying our society. 60% of all Americans are overweight. 20% are obese. It is becoming the number one medical problem, uh, and this in a world where a third of the world is going hungry. This is the sin of sodomy right here in America all over the place. 
And, and uh, uh, you know, the more people, I mean, you're defiling the temple of God. Uh, you, you're, this isn't a healthy thing to do. And more people die of health, of, of uh, diseases related to being overweight than die from smoking. And I know a lot of churches that div- make the dividing line between who's in and who's out on smoking. But the Bible never mentions smoking, but it does have a lot to say about food. Why don't we start a church of, of, of Weight Watchers, first church of skinny people right here? And we can have scales out there, and, and, and if anyone's going like, to be along to us, we can just weigh them. And we'll be gracious about it. We'll give them a 2% body fat leniency thing, okay? But uh, we need to crack down on this thing here. Why don't we do that? And see, I could get a lot of life from this one, because this happens to be one of the sins that I'm really good at avoiding. I've always been health conscious. I've always exercised. I, I really believe in it. I take care of my temple. What about you? Uh, you know, I, 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 had to, I had to lose 30 pounds a couple uh, years ago, and boom, I took it off. I just stopped eating. Why can't you just stop eating? Huh? Uh, just, 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 just turn that whole thing off. It's your free will. You know, just kick it in there. And start exercising and, and lose weight. Why don't we do this? How come we, not, we never question the faith of an obese person? Uh, but we do it with a number of other things. And here's why we don't do it. And I'm, I'm doing this to expose our omniscience mechanism and how selective we are and how we use it. First of all, if we did this, churches would be 60% smaller. <laughs> and legalists, any legalist will tell you that if you're going to go after a sin, go after one that, that the majority of your people, especially the big contributors, aren't guilty of. You've got to go after a minority sin. You know, the transvestites make a good target because, you know, they don't give much to church anyway. So, and, and now we can feel righteous. We're on the inside because they're on the outside, and we feel good about that. You see? Go after a minority sin. Secondly, when it comes to overweightness, here we're able to say we're all sinners. You know, look at it. I, I'm not guilty of overweight, but I, I, I have lust, and I have greed, and I, I don't give enough to the poor either. And, and there are times when I myself kind of pig out, and... and, and uh, I, I, I don't pray enough, and, and I don't love enough, and, and I sometimes have hateful thoughts. So I'm not going to cast the first stone at people who are overweight. And that's very, very good thinking. You, like them, are sinners. My question is, why don't we do that consistently? Why, if any, if any sin I submit to you should be a demarcation of who's on the inside and who's on the outside, it should be weight. But we don't do that. The third thing is this. When it comes to overweightness, especially obesity, we understand. We tend to have compassion because we know that... I mean, there are people who just choose to let themselves go. They're, they just choose to be slobs. They just they don't care. There are people like that. Uh, they use their free will to just go that way. But for, on the whole, we understand that people who have food issues, uh, the issue is really not food at all. It's far more complex than that. We understand now, uh, not everyone, and there's still a lot of discrimination against overweight people in our culture, uh, there really is. I, I sometimes wonder, I mean, I get on a plane and I wonder, what, what would a person who's 400 pounds, uh, how, how do you get on planes? I, I don't, the, the, our, our society doesn't accommodate that. So there's still a lot of judgment here. But on the whole, in the church, we understand that, that people who have food issues, often they're medicating their, their pain, they're medicating rejection, they're medicating loneliness. Uh, some women who have been sexually abused, this is their way of keeping men at bay. There's a fear of men. And they're not doing this uh, thinking it. It's just a subconscious thing. But it's their way uh, of keeping men at bay. And so we understand that, that if you're going to say anything about obesity, you've got to be on the inside of a life because it's really quite complex. I remember seeing a documentary on this on, on overweight people, and, and there was this one woman who was just scarfing up all this food. Uh, she must have been 400 pounds, and she had two plates of spaghetti, and she was just going at it and going at it. And the person on the camera asked the question that every person who doesn't have a food issue asks. Why do you do that? Why don't you stop that? Stop it. Just choose to stop it. 
I do that. Why can't you? The lady in Wilson Phillips did it. She, had, she got stomach stapled, I guess, but, but uh, she chose it. Why don't you? And see, what this lady said was this. She goes, I don't know. I hate it, but I don't know why I do it. But I know this. The only time I ever feel good in life is when I'm eating. And what's behind that? I don't know. And then she said, you know what? Food's the only friend I have. It never judges me. It doesn't look down on me. And it doesn't care how fat I get. In fact, it will help me get there. And so it's my only friend. What's that saying? You see, and, and to come along and say, hey, you're overweight. The Bible doesn't like that. You're not going to really, you're just going to confirm everything she, she already believes. So when it comes to this, we tend to be more compassionate. It misses the mark. It's not God's ideal. Being disciplined in all things is God's ideal. We need to preach the word of God without compromise. We need to do that. But we understand that how that applies, we have to give people space. There's issues, there's complexities that we don't know about. If they invite us in, then there may be a time where we, using the wisdom of love, know uh, uh, that there may be perhaps a time to say, hey, let's, let's talk about this, this food con- control problem that you've got. Maybe when you're on the inside, but as outsiders, you give space. You, by grace, give space. You know, it's not easy living that life. And so you have compassion on them. I, there was a, a lady that I knew some years ago who was significantly overweight, obese, very obese. And um, uh, I, for a number of reasons, I, as this assistant pastor in this church, got involved in her life to help out in some things that were going on. And at one point, she, and on top of being obese, and she, she was hitting my stereotype that I grew up with because my dad always used to say stuff like this, she didn't bathe very often, and, and you could tell there was an odor there. And you see, fat people stink. Uh, and, and so I had to work through some of my judgment mechanisms that were there. Um, but as I got to know her, there was a point where she invited me in on the, the weight issue. And she says, I don't know why I can't control my food. I just wish I could do that. I just eat. I think it's just because my life is so doggone screwed up. This is the only avenue of escape I have. Well, I, know, I know God doesn't like me to, to be this way. The Bible says stuff against gluttony. He doesn't. Will you help me kind of overcome my weight problem? And I said, you know, I, I, I will. And I want to bring others in on the situation to help too because, you know, they maybe will have more time for this than I, I have. But right now, Betty, you know what? I, I, I really think you ought to put that one on the back burner for a little bit because there's other things going on here that you need to take care of. For one thing, she had just gotten out of a, not just, but she was still reeling from a, from a very, very vicious divorce uh, that it, it was just killing her. Uh, for another thing, um, uh, she had tremendous financial problems. And for another thing, she loathed herself. She despised herself. In fact, she, every morning she had to ask the question, she had to try to find a reason not to end her life. And it, it, see, if, it, it, if you're trying to accomplish a good thing out of a center of emptiness, you're probably not going to accomplish it. I'm quite sure she would never lose a pound because she, she that, that's why she doesn't bathe. She's, she's manifesting her self-loathing. She doesn't deserve to bathe, bathe. That's what's really going on there. And so I said, you need to get a center of love in Christ as you are in order to have the motivation to become something different than you are. Uh, it, it, trying to lose weight to get worth is probably not going to work in the first place. But even if it did work... You wouldn't have the worth you're looking for. The worth comes only from Jesus Christ. And all of our growth has to come out of a fullness. Now, some here might say, man, you're compromising the word of God. The Bible says, and now you hold up all the verses that I held up. You ought to be coming down on this woman. But you know what? If you did that, first of all, everything you said, she would already know. Secondly, you just feed into her self-loathing, and that might even be the thing to push her over the edge. Convince her that, you know what? I don't have a reason today not to kill myself. Love, when you get on the inside... Love sees things different. And now, you see, everything we believe and everything we do, however true and however right, if it's not done in love, it is worthless. 
right? That's what Paul says. It's a noise, noise. It's fact, it's damaging. So you, if you go into a life and you don't know, but you think you know what you, uh, what you don't know, you bulldoze over their life with all, with all your rules and you apply it in unloving ways and it's destructive and it can lead people to suicide. So in the name of being godly, you just ended this person's life. You have to be on the inside. And I think we, on the whole, would understand that. I don't think very many people here would say, I'm compromising the word of God by, giving, by not insisting that she look like me. By not insisting that she takes care of that issue first. Now what if... I told you that on top of all the stuff I said about Betty, I said just what I said to Betty as I reported, but one other fact you need to know about her is that she was gay. Immediately, somebody in this auditorium probably is thinking, okay, here he goes, compromising the Word of God. Yep, uh, just not cr- He's going soft on homosexuality. This is, you know, he's going pro-gay. There it is. You need to, we need to draw the line here. We need to take a stand. This is, a, this is damaging society right here and right now. You need to just, you know, come on. And what I'm wondering is this. Why do you think that about the gay issue but not about the obesity issue? See, I'm not pro-gay. I'm just, I'm pro-people. And some people are gay. And some people are obese. And some people have lust in their heart. Some people are self-righteous. Some people feel righteous because they're not self-righteous. They're anti-Pharisee Pharisees. I know one. Some, some, people, some people are greedy. Some people don't care about justice issues. Some people don't give to the poor. Some people don't give, give anything out of themselves. Some people are self-centered. You know what? It's all, we're all in a cesspool. But the thing, I, the thing about Jesus is this. He died for every one of us. He ascribes us impossible worth to every one of us. He was pro-people. Amen. Amen. And it's when, we walk, it's when we walk in that love that now we begin to actually make a difference. When we're on the inside of a person's life, we begin to make a difference to them. Why would a person, in fact, I'm sure that this tape will make its way out to some religious judges who are just going to say, oh, look at Boyd's, you know, gone pro-homosexual. Uh, but no one worries about me being pro-obesity. I, there's, there's, uh, why is that? Is it, because, is it because the gay issue is less complex than the obese, obesity issue? I submit to you that, if anything, it's more complex. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's harder to figure out. Is it because it's, the gay issue is more damaging to society than, than the obesity issue? I submit to you that the, the two don't even come close. Is it because the Bible talks more about homosexuality than about obesity? I would submit, submit to you that it talks far, far less than about obesity. Could the reason be because 60% of people are overweight and only 1% to 5% are actually gay? And so on this issue, all of a sudden, the first thing that has to happen, otherwise they don't really believe, the first thing is they have to look like me. It has to be my way. I know what I know, and that's that these people need to, just, they need to stop that right here and right now. You have to be on the inside of a life. See, it misses the mark. It is sin. Just like obesity is, just like lust is, just like everything else is. But truth applied in unloving ways is at best religious noise, and it may be damaging. We are called to walk in love. And if you're not on the inside of a life, your job is to ascribe unsurpassable worth. That's it. If they invite you in, now in love, as you talk through things, you might see that this isn't, this isn't the first issue that needs to be addressed. If a person's thinking about suicide, this isn't the first issue to be addressed. You see? There's a time and a place and a space and a growing pattern, and we can't impose that it's always got to look like it did for me. And the point really isn't about gayness at all. 
We could talk about drunks. If Betty was a drunk, if Betty was a transvestite, if Betty slept around with women, if Betty was a cheat, if Betty was, you, you name anything you want, the approach would always have to be the same. In love, we have to, in love, we enter in and learn the, how this situation is being driven. And now we become a driver instead of a backseat critic. The cheapest thing to, the easiest thing to do and the thing that is often done in religious circles is we become a religious parasite. A parasite sucks life off of another. Religious people operating out of their omniscience mechanism latch onto certain sins, not our own sins, of course, but certain sins, and we get life from not having it. You know, and, and so we get worth by detracting their worth when our job is to wash their feet, ascribe unsurpassable worth to them, love like Jesus Christ loved us, dying for us on the cross. Amen. 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 Let, let me end with this. Um, would you close your eyes and pray? And is there anybody here this morning... Uh, this is just an ordinary thing. This is the way the kingdom goes forward. You've never surrendered to Jesus Christ. I don't care if you're gay. I don't care if you're obese. I don't care if you're, if, if you're a, a self-righteous religious person. What I care about is this. Uh, do you recognize that you, that you need Jesus Christ in your life to get the fullness of life he created you to have? And if you do, and if you do, and you realize you need to surrender to him, turn Turn from yourself towards him. Would you just stand where you are? And I'm not going to do anything else. I just want to pray for you from up here. If you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you've heard it here this morning in a different way than you've ever heard it and landed. You are loved more than you could ever believe right here and right now. No ifs, ands, or buts. And Jesus wants to enter into your life, begin to give you that life, begin to change that life. If you know you need that, just stand up where you are, and I'm just going to pray for you and lead you in a prayer that really begins this relationship with him. Anybody here in the auditorium at all? Holy Spirit, be moving. I'll take 15 seconds more, very quickly. Anybody here? I just want to give a chance to anyone who's here who needs to do this. Holy Spirit, it's moving. All right. Oh, sister in the back, praise God. Anybody else? I just, this is the time. Just stand up where you are. You need Jesus Christ. He died for you. Though you were part of this septic tank in the bank, in the, in the back, praise God. Thank you, brother. You're part of the same septic tank of all of our lives. No worse, no different. I know the best about you, and I know the worst about you. And I'm just asking you now to receive the best. Jesus Christ died for you. Okay, you, you, you two in the back, would you just pray with me this prayer? In fact, we'll all join with you as a source of support. This is how we all come to the Lord. This is how you, your first steps in the kingdom. So pray this prayer out loud from the depths of your heart. Heavenly Father, I know that you are God, that you are righteous, and that I have not lived for you. I confess that I am a sinner in need of your grace. But I believe that you died for me while I was yet a sinner. I believe that you love me as I am right now. And I ask you, Lord, to forgive me, wash me, make me clean, dwell within me. Thank you, Lord, for loving me as I am. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you folks in the back. I, I appreciate that. That's wonderful. Uh, praise God. Praise God. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Amen. God, that delights the heart of God so much.
I want to encourage you who stood this morning, or maybe you didn't, uh, maybe you're, you're, you're too nervous about it, but you're interested in becoming a believer. Would you folks just take one minute and come up here over in the corner and speak with this lady? She has some information she would really like to give you uh, that will help you get started in your walk with God. Let me close with this prayer as the prayer team comes forward. Heavenly Father, help us to walk in your outrageous love. Collapse our omniscience mechanism, Lord. Help us to remember what we don't know. And just to bless, just to bless every person we bless, every situation we bless. Father, make us outrageous lovers to all people at all times. Help us, Lord, as we leave this place to greet each other in love and to extend that warmth without judgment to all people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you want to come forward for prayer, there's some people here who would be happy to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you. Go forth in outrageous love. We love you guys. Amen.